Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I'm the Youth Director here at SFBC. This week, Pastor Rob Schaff shares his heart for discipleship and offers some parting advice and encouragement in his last sermon as a staff member at Sardis Fellowship. Enjoy! Hello, my name is Rob Schaff, and I am the pastor of discipling here at Sardis Fellowship for one more Sunday today. And in fact, today is the last time that I get to preach as the discipling pastor at Sardis Fellowship. Now, there is a lot that I want to say, and there's some stuff that I need to say, and there is some stuff that I have a privilege of saying, and I don't have a lot of time to get to it all, so we're just going to get right to it. Here is what I want to say. Thank you. Sardis Fellowship has been my church family for about 14 years. When I started attending this church, I was a single 21-year-old punk rocker trying to get my band signed to a label, and now I'm a 36-year-old who is married to an awesome woman, has two incredible kids, and I've spent 10 years in various pastoral roles here. And just thank you. Thank you for taking care of us. You've all provided so much for me, from, uh, from back when Jim and Lynn would fill laundry baskets filled with food when I was a starving artist and a Bible college student, to the ladies' coffee collection, where they would meet and have coffee and take up money so that they could uh, give it to me and uh, get me a haircut back when I was first starting to lead worship here. To the endless mentors and the ministry comrades and the missions trips and all of these crazy special opportunities that you've given to us, thank you. And a special thanks uh, to the Radical Mentoring guys and to our life group. Thank you for getting to know uh, Diane and I on a deeper level and for letting yourselves be known as well. Thank you for caring for us, for discipling me and my family. Thank you for being a church that is full of grace and gives people room to grow. Thank you for being a church that wants to keep the conversation going, that trusting that God is doing a work in the midst of it. Thank you. And more than anything, I want to thank you for your friendship. I've always thought of fellowship as being friendship centered around a purpose. And we've had and made so many friends here. And my favorite experiences of my time at Sardis Fellowship, from May Camp to missions trips, from worship teams to youth groups to radical mentoring and leaders meetings, and it's all been friendship centered around Jesus. I have enjoyed it thoroughly. This is a great church. Thank you for being great. I also wanted to take some time to address some frequently asked questions like, where are you moving? Okay, we're moving to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. We are living in the city, not outside of the city. I've got a lot of extended family in and around the city, but we are moving in a city, and it's a new city, a new neighborhood. It's a new adventure. I did grow up in Saskatchewan, but this is a, a different area in Saskatchewan that I've grown up in, so it's, it's all new. And my parents, they do live in Saskatchewan. They live and work in a small town called Eston, which is about two hours outside of Saskatoon. But we are not living in a small town outside of Saskatoon. We're in the city. Okay. Uh, and by the way, we are excited to be closer to my parents because it's a lot easier to see them when we don't have, you know, 18 hours of driving in the Rocky Mountains and between us. So it's going to be really good. Uh, second question, what are you doing for work? Well, Diana is going to be pursuing work as a unit clerk or a medical office assistant. It's what she just finished up her schooling for. 
and I'm going to be going back to university, to the University of Saskatchewan, uh, with the goal of being a high school art teacher, or English, one of the two. Uh, so that leads to the next question. Are you going to keep being a pastor? Let me rephrase this question. Am I going to be on staff in a pastoral role at a church somewhere? Not as far as I know. Uh, we'll see what God has in store. I don't think, though, that pastoring is something that a person simply steps into or out of or can opt out of. So I'm actually excited to discover what church life looks like without being on staff at a church. Which leads to the next question that people have been asking me. Are you still a Christian? Yes. Yes, I am. Moving on. Will you keep in touch? Yeah, of course. Of course we're going to keep in touch. We'll stop in when we're in town. Uh, and we still have social media and FaceTime and Zoom and whatever. Like, we're not... We're still alive. We'll still be friends. We're still around. Right? And if you're ever in Saskatoon, like, call us up. Maybe we'll grab a coffee. Okay? Now that we're all on the same page with those things, uh, I wanted to get us all on the same page. Uh, I've got to spend a lot of time in the last months uh, trying to close many loops on a bunch of different random responsibilities uh, to try to facilitate a smooth transition to the church for whatever's next. And that brings me to something I need to do in today's sermon. Some loop closing on the housekeeping of the discipleship responsible responsibilities that I have, specifically uh, the discipleship sermons that I've gotten to preach uh, that have been informed by our collective efforts to articulate our church's comprehensive discipleship plan. So, here's what I need to say. Discipleship is following Jesus and learning from him and doing what he did and being about what he was about, right? That's basically discipleship in a nutshell. And all of my discipleship sermons can be summarized like this. Desire God, desire what Jesus desires, help others desire God, and desire together, a.k.a. desire and live as a church. Now you'll notice that I said the word desire a lot. And that's because God created us to be beings that desire, desiring beings, beings that want, beings that love. And I firmly believe that our hearts will be restless until we find our rest in him or until our wants are directed towards God. When we desire God, we learn to desire what Jesus desires. We bring others to God and we live out our faith in this world as a church. All of the work of discipleship finds its start, its middle, and its end desiring God. So let me give you an example of this type of desire. It's a variation of an example that I've used before. I love tennis. I'm not very good at it, but I love it. My love for tennis uh, really bloomed out of me and my brother hanging out at my parents' cabin because out of my parents' cabin, they had this really nasty, busted up, cracked uh, pavement tennis court. And we would use it primarily for BMX biking and for skateboarding. Uh, but in my early 20s, one day we went to the cabin with my parents and we didn't bring our skateboards or our BMXs because we were kind of like growing out of it. But anyway, all we had was this busted up tennis court and then rackets and tennis balls that we found at the cabin. And so we decided, hey, yeah, we got nothing else to do. Let's give it a shot. And we had an absolute blast. We had no idea what we were doing, but it was really fun. It certainly wasn't tennis that we were playing. Uh, all we knew is that in tennis, the score zero was called love. Uh, but other than that, we kind of did everything wrong. Uh, 
Uh, we were lobbing the ball 30 feet in the air uh, with every single hit, trying to get it to land somewhere in the square of the court and just running around like madmen uh, trying to keep the ball in bounds. It was so much fun. We loved it. Uh, and eventually, I learned the basic rules of tennis. I learned the basic techniques. And I grew to love the game even more. And I'm still not very good even to this day, but I really, really, really enjoy trying to get better. And now if the weather is good and I have some time and a friend who's actually available to play, I basically will always jump at that opportunity. I love playing tennis. So with that in mind, here's a scenario for you. I'm in a game, and unfortunately I'm losing the game. It's my serve, and the score is 15 serving 40, which means that I'm down by two, and they're about to win the game. I serve the ball with a smack, and it's going real fast, and I manage to catch my opponent off guard, and it goes right past them. And that's great, but there's just one problem. I know that the ball landed just long. It's a fault. It doesn't actually count. However, my opponent thinks it was in, and he says, shoot, nice serve there, comeback kid. It's 30 serving 40. So do I take the free point, or do I call fault and reserve? If I love winning, I'm going to take the free point. But if I truly love tennis, I'm not going to cheat for a cheap point. Because when you really love tennis, the satisfaction doesn't come from being better than your opponent. It comes from the proper execution of each movement. I mean, it's awesome when that results in a win. But as I already said, that's, I, I'm not that great at tennis anyway. I'm not really in it for the W. Uh, those moments when it clicks and feels really good, that's what I'm working towards. That's what I'm in there for. That's what I want. And funny enough, the more that those kinds of moments happen, the more likely it is that I'm going to win. But... It's not like there are no shortcuts. So what do I do? Of course, I call fault and I reserve because there would be no point in cheating. It would defeat the purpose of the work I'm putting in by playing the game to begin with if I were to take a cheat point. Because remember, I don't want to beat my friend. I want to get tennis. The same is true with desiring God. There are no cheats. There are no shortcuts. There would be no point in taking a faith shortcut or in faking faith. To do so would defeat the purpose of the work that I'm trying to put in by desiring God to begin with. I don't want to superficially appear better than others. I want to understand God more. I want to experience God in my life. And everything about God in a person's life is beautiful. From the first time that you catch a glimpse of his beauty, to the moment you recognize you need him, to every single step that you take in your life that is taken towards him, it's all beautiful. Now, if you just love winning, you'll take every shortcut and cheat that you can think up. But if you love God, you will let him do his work in you as you work out your salvation with awe and wonder. You're not going to go for the shortcuts. You're going to put in the work. So do the work, not to earn the love of God, but out of love for God. Everything that we do together as a church, whether it's a life group or a Bible study or a class or a women's event or a men's event or a primetime event or every worship service and coffee meetup or mentoring program or book club or soccer camp or friendship or podcast or PowerPoint presentation, every aspect of what you see is the comprehensive discipleship plan. That's everything that we do together. We do it because we want God in our lives as individuals and as the church. 
So the discipleship sermon loop that I need to close is just to say this. If you desire God, and if you desire what Jesus desires, and if you help others to desire God, and if you are doing all those things in everything you do, then you should just keep doing it until you die or until Jesus comes back. That's what it means to be a disciple, so do it. Continue to do that, and we will continue to be a church that disciples. Don't cheat. Don't look for shortcuts. Just do the work. Ask yourself, how am I putting in the work of desiring God individually and as a part of this church? And if you're not, well, just do it. Nike, tennis, discipleship, loop closed. Okay? That's what I needed to say today in the discipleship sermon. Now, one of my favorite responsibilities has been getting to preach. When I was studying at ACT seminaries, my professor of preaching, uh, Kent Anderson, he said something along these lines, that preaching is a privilege because we get to lead the congregation in listening to what God is saying to us through his word. We don't stand up here and say whatever we want. It's not our words and our truth that we proclaim. As preachers, we have the privilege to lead in listening to God. That means that we have a head start because we get to read the Bible ahead of time and pray over it and formulate our thoughts and try to articulate them clearly, all to facilitate further conversation in the lives of our church. And then we get to share what we have heard. So I needed to say this. I have considered it a privilege to be able to preach here. And it's, one, it's a privilege that I've very much enjoyed. So thank you for the opportunity. So we've covered what I wanted to say and we've covered what I needed to say. And here's now what I get a privilege to say. It comes from James 4, 13 to 17. It reads like this. Now, listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Arrogance is always off-putting. Well, real arrogance anyway. Have you ever met somebody that knows everything and has all the answers, even though they don't actually know what they're talking about? That can be incredibly frustrating. It can be really funny when you're just messing with a person with feigned arrogance. For example, in the proud and long-standing tradition of the dad joke. Dad, where did tigers come from? Me. I invented tigers. Dad. Right? I love pulling stuff like that on my kids. It's so much fun. But arrogance is really frustrating to deal with when it isn't a joke made in love, but when it's actually that person's true disposition towards the world. But even then, what James is getting at is a lot more than just don't be obnoxious and arrogant bragging about your future plans. That's not what James is getting at. What James is getting at is this. It's arrogant and evil to live your life like God isn't real. We can so easily convince ourselves that we are self-made, self-sufficient, self-sustained, and that we are in control of every aspect of our lives, past, present, and future. It's so easy for us to think that our future is ours alone to define. 
But we aren't in control, not really. We are a mist, we are fleeting. We are here one minute and we are gone the next. And it would be good for us to keep this perspective. Now that's not to say we can't be happy when a plan comes together or that we shouldn't pursue our dreams and our ambitions and our hopes for the future. But James says about these things, we should say, if it is the Lord's will. Now it's really easy for us to miss what James is getting at here. Because I think sometimes people treat the phrase, Lord willing, like to treat the phrase, no offense. They say something incredibly offensive, but feel like they can get off the hook because they said, no offense. Like, no offense, but that shirt makes you look like a failure. Right? Can't be offended. I said no offense. I think Christians can do that with the phrase, Lord willing. Lord willing, I'm going to make a billion dollars exploiting orphans and widows so I can buy a yacht and be comfortable forever. Now that's a ridiculous example because we know that orphans and widows are close to God's heart and any plan that exploits them would obviously be outside of God's will. I don't think many of us would pull a Lord willing on a plan that exploits widows and orphans, right? Right? That's ridiculous. That would never happen. Uh, But I mean, it's actually not that ridiculous and it sort of happens all the time. And actually, if you read on in James 5, which we're not going to do today, but if you were to, the very next section of James applies this principle specifically to people who hide behind their wealth and see their success as being the proof that God is with them. And James writes explicitly that the cries of the exploited workers that they have exploited to get there have actually reached the ears of the Lord Almighty and he's not too impressed with what they have done saying, Lord willing. It's back to the simple discipleship tennis analogy. People cutting corners to get ahead to get what they want any way they can, but instead of, of getting you know, what's actually important, putting winning over putting getting better at tennis putting what I want over God. Now, there's a lot of things that are obviously close to God's heart when you read the Bible. There are actually a lot of corners that we can cut when it comes to the plans that we make to achieve the goals that we have in mind. Do we really, does does God really expect us to work all the things that he cares about into our plans? Yes. Yes, he does. God wants things for us, and his desires for us aren't just one opinion, for us to consider. It's not really an opt-in situation. Like we say to ourselves, I want to do A. And God says, well, actually, I want you to do B. And we say, eh, to each his own. I'm going to do A. No, James says, stop doing that. Especially if you consider yourself a believer, right? If you're a disciple. What James, when James says, what you ought to do is say, if it is the Lord's will, we will do this and that. What he means is this. Take a look at your hopes, your plans, your ambitions, what you want for the future, and put a big if in front of it. Because God has wants, and we have wants, and if our wants line up with what God wants, we should do it. And if our wants don't line up with what God wants, we shouldn't. With your future plans, align your will to God's, and then do what God wills. That's what's best for you. That's what it means to say, if it is the Lord's will, or Lord willing, right? And then James ends the section with this. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. This is a continuation of the same line of thinking we just unpacked. If you do whatever you want with no regard for the will of God, that's a sin. And if you know what God's will is for you, 
and you opt out, that's still sin. It's still missing the mark of what God wants for you. Now, the prophet Jonah in the Old Testament, uh, when God wa- he knew what God wanted him to do explicitly. God said, go preach to Nineveh that they should repent. And what did Jonah do? He got on a boat and headed to the other end of the known world. He hopped a boat for Tarshish because he wanted nothing to do with God showing mercy to the Ninevites. Jonah opted out. What? I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, but she also failed to do anything right. This is what we call a sin of omission. And when it comes to our life plans, it's actually very incredibly easy to do a sin of omission. To make ourselves so busy with the things that we'd like to be doing that there is no longer any time to be engaged with the things that we know God is calling us to do. If you know what God wants you to do, do it. Don't avoid it. So what is God's place in the plans that you make? Or maybe better stated, what is your place in the plans that God has? Do you want to know? How do you find out? Well, that's literally what the discipleship journey is all about. Discerning God's will. It isn't magic, it's a process. When you're born, you're pretty useless. All you can do is lay there like a blob, and eventually you get tummy time, and it's a process, right? You grow, and you learn, and your skills build off of one another, and your abilities increase, until eventually this little blob who has tummy time is able to roll around, and then crawl, and then toddle, and then walk, and then run, and then jog, and jump, and skate, and skydive, and whatever. It isn't magic, but it is an incredible process of growth. You aren't born a marathon runner. You're born a blob with the potential to maybe someday run a marathon. And I think the same is true with knowing God and knowing the plans that God has for us. It's not like you just say a prayer one day when you accept Jesus in your heart and instantly you know everything that God has planned for you. Now to be sure, the Bible does an amazing job of revealing the heart of God to us and his will for us. Love just, live justly, love mercy, walk humbly with him. That's Micah 6, 8. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. It's Colossians 3.23. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Romans 12.1. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Mark 12.30-31. We could go all day. The Bible has plenty of things that God wants us to do and how he wants us to live our lives. But figuring out the specifics of what God might be calling you to in your life, what his plans for your future are, that takes trust and wisdom and discernment that only comes with time. And if you're anything like me, you'll crawl before you walk and you'll walk before you'll run and you'll do a lot of falling on your face trying to figure it out. But like a parent teaching a toddler to walk, God is there to pick you up, cheer you on, and teach you to trust him in everything. I want to read this passage again, and then I want to end the sermon. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will... We will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. As 
All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. In light of the fact that in a couple of weeks, my family is literally going to this or that city, spending a long time there, and hoping to carry on business and make money, I think you can see why this passage has been bouncing around in my head. I said I get the privilege to lead us in listening. Well, here's what I've heard. I get the privilege to say this. It's never arrogant to trust God with your future. Check your heart. Don't cheat. Don't look for shortcuts. Don't cut corners. Put in the work of making sure that you are pursuing God. And even if it's the hardest thing you've ever had to do in your adult life, you won't go wrong putting your future in God's hands. For me and my family, this move is a huge plan and it's a huge change of plans. It's a big change. But this plan is in keeping with what and who I know God is, with who I know God has made our family to be, with how I know God has gifted our family, and in conversation with friends and mentors who we trust. There's so much that makes sense about this plan for us. And there's been so much prayer and tears. And we have put the big if that James wrote about in front of our hopes and dreams, if the Lord wills it. And our plans are in keeping with everything we know God says to do. We aren't running away from anything that God has said needs doing. It's what we want. It's what's in keeping with what we know God wants. So we're stepping out, not in arrogance, but with fear, trembling, awe, and wonder, trusting that God is up to something. I'm excited for the future of my family, and I'm excited for the future of Sardis Fellowship. We're all in good hands. So that's what I wanted to say, and that's what I needed to say, and that's what I have the privilege today of saying. We're all in good hands. We'll see you around. Thank you again so much. Let's remember each other in prayer. See you around. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.